0: The American Thoracic Society, we help the world breathe. I'm Nitin Seam, podcast editor for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Renard and Sean Aaron about a manuscript that describes the outcome of a trial studying a novel drug for COPD. Dr. Renard and his colleagues have an article entitled, CXCR2 Antagonist MK7123, a Phase 2 Proof-of-Concept Trial for COPD. And Dr. Aaron's accompanying editorial, Walking a Tightrope, Targeting Neutrophils to Treat COPD, are both published in the May 1, 2015 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Renard is Larson Professor of Medicine in the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine section of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. He has served as a member of the expert panel which prepared the global gold guidelines for COPD. Dr. Aaron is Professor at the University of Ottawa and a Senior Scientist at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. He is the Chief of Respiratory Medicine at the Ottawa Hospital. Let's start the podcast with a question for Dr. Renard. So, Dr. Renard, before we get into the specifics of your study, I was hoping you could tell us about the drug that was used in the study, MK7123, an antagonist of cytokine receptor CXCR2. How might this drug benefit patients with COPD?
1: Well, thank you for the question. COPD is a disease that's been associated with substantial amounts of inflammation in the lungs. And in particular, neutrophils are thought to play a prominent role in the pathogenesis of COPD and the symptoms associated with it. Now, the neutrophils obviously aren't native to the lung. They come from the bone marrow and they migrate into the lung where they become activated and contribute, it's believed, both to alterations in tissue structure in the lung and to symptoms. Now, there's a number of mechanisms to get neutrophils from the bone marrow through the circulation into the lung, and one of the pathways that can drive neutrophil recruitment is the so-called CXCR2, a receptor-mediated pathway. So an inhibitor of CXCR2 by blocking neutrophil recruitment into the lungs could decrease neutrophilic inflammation and therefore have potential benefits in patients with COPD.
0: Thanks, Dr. Renard. So, Dr. Aaron has some background. I see a fair amount of patients with COPD in my clinic, and I was particularly interested in discussing this study because, you know, our current COPD treatment options are, frankly, different versions of a lot of the same things. Reading your editorial, I sense you were also pleased to see a study of something novel. Please tell us your opinion of the study concept.
2: Well, thank you for the question. I was very pleased to see such a novel clinical trial using a novel agent. As you sort of intimated, for the last 10 years or so, COPD treatments have, for the most part, been same old, same old. We're using typically combinations of various long-acting bronchodilators and inhaled steroids to treat COPD, and we've been doing the same thing now for more than 10 or 15 years. You know, some of my frustration stems from the fact that we're still seeing lots of new bronchodilators and lots of new clinical trials evaluating these bronchodilators coming to uh, market and being published in the medical journals. There's nothing wrong with these studies, but they they, they somewhat lack novelty. And realistically, I don't think any of these new bronchodilators or new studies are going to provide the uh, breakthroughs in care that we so desperately need for our patients. The exception here is the current study, the study of MK7123. Even if the study has not been a resounding success in terms of proving efficacy, uh, I think it breaks new ground because it's targeting a pathway which is potentially important for the pathogenesis and progression of COPD neutrophils, uh, we all believe, as Dr. Renard so eloquently explained, are very important for uh, triggering inflammation within the airways and perhaps leading to an enhanced inflammatory response and airway damage. And all of this perpetuates the disease and perhaps makes the disease progress over time.
0: So, Dr. Renard, I wanted to summarize briefly the study concepts in the interest of time in the podcast and you feel free to expand on that. Your group conducted a phase two double blind multi center randomized trial of MK seven one two three in six hundred and sixteen patients with moderate to severe C O P D who are already receiving standard therapy. Patients were randomized to one of four groups. 10, 30, or 50 milligrams of MK7123 or placebo. And the primary endpoint of your study was six-month change from baseline FEV1. Before we get into the study findings, are there any study details that you believe deserve important mention?
1: Yes, I think so. I think that it's important to understand the goals of the study. And this was really the first comprehensive study of MK7123 in people. And so, the kinds of information that were key to find is, A, does the drug actually do anything, and is the drug safe? Those are obviously uh, the first key issues. They're actually always key issues, but in initial studies, obviously, a fairly conservative approach towards safety is, uh, I I think, is required, and that's particularly true with a drug that might affect neutrophils, which obviously do play a very important role in host defense. So, the major goal is to establish those things. The FEV1 was chosen as the primary outcome variable. Something has to be chosen as the primary outcome, and FEV1 was chosen, but there were a lot of secondary outcomes as well, specifically measuring neutrophils and neutrophil-associated biomarkers that also factor importantly in terms of whether the study could show anything. And then in addition, I think it's worth commenting that it is a study that tested multiple doses And so it was obviously of interest to see if there were any observed potential effects of the drug. Did it show an appropriate dose ranging? That is, was there a bigger effect with a higher dose?
0: Well, thank you for that. And now I'd ask you if you could uh, summarize the study findings.
1: Well, thank you. So first, I think that in terms of the primary outcome variable, there was an overall effect in favor of the drug on the FEV1 for the study population as a whole, there was a statistically significant improvement in FEV1 with the highest dose of the drug of about 67 mils. Interestingly, in a planned subset analysis, when it was looked for people who had specifically who were smokers, the effect was considerably larger in that group. In smokers, the improvement in airflow was about 168 mils. That accounts for the majority of the improvement, there was a much less effect, actually not a statistically significant effect, in the non-smokers, or actually they were ex-smokers who were included in the trial. There were associated trends or some that showed numerical improvement or, in some cases, statistical improvement in other clinical outcomes. Perhaps surprisingly, in the smokers, there was also a reduction in the number of exacerbations that was observed. That was a bit of surprise. The study really wasn't powered to look for exacerbations. Of course, they were tracked. The fact that it was observed in a smaller study raises the possibility that there could be a type 1 statistical error, but that was observed in the study. And then finally, there were reductions in the biomarkers. There was a dose-related decrease in peripheral blood neutrophils, and there was a decrease in both neutrophils in the sputum and in selected biomarkers, although there were some surprises in that regard as well. Now, regarding safety, there was a drop in the neutrophil levels. Now, the study had an arbitrary cutoff that if the neutrophil count fell below 1,500 that the study drug would be stopped as a safety measure. And a number of people uh, reached that threshold, and therefore the drug was discontinued uh, at that point. And that was also dose-related. At the highest dose that was tested, that's the 50-milligram dose, which is the one that had the biggest therapeutic effects. It, It also had the largest percentage of individuals who reached that threshold and had the drug stopped according to the a priori plan.
0: So, Dr. Aaron... I know there are studies describing minimally important differences in FEV1, and though the increase in FEV1 that Dr. Renard just described was physically significant with the 50 milligram dose, both in the overall group and especially in the group who are current smokers, is it clinically significant?
2: Well, I think generally, we think of the minimal clinically important difference in FEV1 as being 100 milliliters. In other words, patients will recognize that they feel better and have improved physical sense of health and ability to conduct activities if their FEV1 rises by 100 milliliters over baseline. So to answer your question, I think in total for the whole group randomized to the 50 milligram dose, the improvement of FEV1 of 67 milliliters over baseline at six months uh, is unlikely to be clinically significant. Now, I don't think, I don't remember seeing this in the paper, but the authors could have chosen to present a a responder analysis where they look at the percent of patients in the control group and in the treatment groups who achieved that 100-milliliter MCID improvement, and that might also give us a better sense of whether there was a proportion of patients treated with the 50-milligram dose who had a clinically significant improvement. Now, the other question you sort of asked me was, what about the current smokers? They had a uh, mean improvement of 168 milliliters in FEV1 over six months, and that certainly exceeds the MCID threshold of 100 mils. So I would think that for the current smokers, there was a clinically significant improvement for the bulk of them after being treated with six months of MK7123. Thank you, Dr. Aaron.
0: Dr. Renard, I wanted to follow up as well regarding the concurrent use of inhaled steroids. I know the study excluded patients who were receiving high-dose inhaled corticosteroids, but patients who were on stable, low, or medium doses were eligible. Did you look at whether concurrent inhaled steroid use had any effect on study drugs?
1: That wasn't tested prospectively. What was done was to stratify enrollment based on steroid use, and then a post-hoc comparison was done, and there really were no dramatic effects that were associated with uh, concurrent inhaled corticosteroid use there were some very slight numerical differences based on being an ICS user versus a non-user, uh, and actually for the very highest dose, that did achieve a statistically significant difference for the FEV1, but the differences were small, and no correction for multiple comparisons was made among all of those things. So I think that the bottom line is within the limits of the study design, which, as I mentioned, was to stratify enrollment across the treatment groups there was really no dramatic effect of whether people were steroid users or non-steroid users uh, in the study. So, Dr. Aaron,
0: obviously we always have to mention the caveat that we have to be cautious in interpreting data related to subgroups, but I certainly found something we alluded to earlier particularly interesting, the fact that the strength of effect of MK7123 on FUV one was greatest in the current smoker subgroup, also found it interesting that the highest dose of MK7123, the 50 milligrams, significantly reduced likelihood of first exacerbation. And I believe Dr. Bernard alluded to earlier, you know, obviously the study was not powered to, to study that compared to placebo. Is there a biological reason that current smokers would derive greater benefit from study drug than ex-smokers?
2: Well, I like to think of smoking. When I explain smoking to my medical students, I discuss it in terms of battery acid. When you inhale cigarette smoke, it's like inhaling battery acid into the lungs, and this provokes a dramatic inflammatory response, both from the bone marrow and within the lung, and clearly a neutrophils are produced and activated and targeted to the lungs to try to deal with the inflammatory insight, insult of inhaled cigarette smoke. So one could imagine that current smokers, as opposed to former smokers, would be consistently subject to a barrage of infl- Inflammatory insults that occur up to 20 or 30 times a day with each cigarette that they light up. If you have a drug like MK7123 that blocks cytokine signaling on the neutrophil and prevents migration of the neutrophil to the lungs and the airways, and you have a um, signal provocation in cigarette smoke that's consistently trying to recruit neutrophils into the airway, you can imagine that a drug that blocks this recruitment in these patients who are at particular risk for inflammatory stimuli would be more effective. So the bottom line is I think the reason the drug is more effective in current smokers may be because the inflammatory stimulus is simply greater and prolonged throughout the day in these smoking patients.
0: I like the battery acid analogy. That's very vivid. Dr. Renard, I actually wanted to commend your group because you looked at temporal changes in sputum and blood biomarkers in the study over six months, not only looking at clinical outcomes, but looking at these changes. Did this analysis of sputum and blood help suggest a reason that MK7123 may be more beneficial in the current smoker group?
1: I'm not sure the analysis addresses that question vigorously. I think that it, it does provide some important insights, and then I can offer my own explanation for The effects in smokers. I mean, there was a biological effect of the drug of MK7123 on neutrophils, and that was seen across the population. So, both in the blood and in the sputum, there were some slight differences in the sputum measurements of some neutrophil products. I mean, specifically, myeloperoxidase was different. And so I think that the maybe MMMP9, that was different in the current smokers versus the non-smokers. But the number of people for whom we had all of those, the, the sputum specimens is relatively small. And so I'm not sure that it's fair to have a lot of confidence that there was more evidence of neutrophil activation in the smokers that was being suppressed by the, by the drug, which would be possible. CXCR2 is believed to play a particularly important role in neutrophil recruitment. CXCR1, in contrast, is believed to play a more prominent role in neutrophil activation, at least in humans. But there could still be less neutrophil activation as a consequence of the drug by a variety of mechanisms, the most important of which would be fewer neutrophils recruited uh, and then in the lung. So I think it would be consistent with that kind of thing happening. I think that another way to expand on Dr. Aaron's comments is that that smoking is a potent stimulus for inflammation. People that have COPD that have quit smoking, their inflammation doesn't go away completely. That's actually one of the interesting paradoxes about COPD. I think that this study certainly provides evidence that the people that are continuing to smoke, that blocking CXCR2 has... Both biological effects and clinically associated effects that you know reach the level that was either really good luck or of potential clinical significance, as Dr. Aaron said. It's plausible to me that the inflammation that persists after somebody quits smoking may not be as dependent on cxcr so There could still be neutrophils in the lung. CXCR2 may still decrease neutrophil recruitment into the blood in those individuals, but it may not have the same biological effects in the lungs because there's other processes that are helping to sustain uh, the neutrophilic inflammation in the lung. So I think that like all good studies, this one raises questions as well as answering some, but, but I think that the bottom line is that I don't think we really know why the response should be different in smokers versus non-smokers, but the fact that we actually have a tool that seems to be separating those different patient populations within COPD at a biological level, I personally consider extremely exciting.
0: Let's talk about something now, Dr. Aaron, that we alluded to earlier in the podcast. What were the most worrisome side effects seen with study drug, and were they dose-dependent?
2: Well, the most worrisome side effect, as Dr. Renard already alluded to, was uh, neutropenia. This drug did cause a drop in neutrophils within the blood, and in 24% of the uh, group randomized to the highest dose, the 50 milligram dose of MK7123, they did have to actually get dropped out of the study because their serum neutrophil count fell below 1,500, and this neutropenia seems to be a dose-dependent effect in that the higher doses seem to have a greater frequency of neutropenia compared to the lower doses of MK7123. The other side effects that go hand-in-hand with neutropenia and neutrophil dysfunction would be infection. Neutrophils are first line of defense for the innate immune response, and they're very important at defending the host against bacterial and fungal infections. If you have a drug which potentially impacts on neutrophil function or neutrophil migration, you obviously worry about a risk of accelerated or enhanced infections in in the patients taking that drug. There is a suggestion from the uh, data in the uh, paper that there was, to some extent, a problem with infections. In the six-month study, the rate of infections and pneumonia seemed to be equivalent between the treatment groups and the control groups. But there was a uh, 12-month extension which a subgroup of patients were uh, included in, i.e. there were some patients who about 50-odd patients, I think, in the highest group who remained on the study drug for 12 months. And it seems clear from looking at that data in Table 2 that there was a 10% higher frequency or higher incidence of pulmonary infections in the group that received MK7123 compared to the placebo group after 12 months. So there may be a signal that's coming through. It's not statistically significant yet, but I think if there are longer-term studies done of this compound, we're going to have to watch carefully for infection-related side effects, specifically pulmonary infections.
0: So, Dr. Renard, I'd like to follow up on the neutropenia concern. Were there any other risk factors other than dose of study drugs for development of neutropenia? And I'd ask for your comment about risk of infection with neutropenia as Dr. Aaron has just
1: discussed. Well, the biggest variable related to neutropenia was the dose of the study drug by far. And so I don't doubt that uh, MK7123 causes neutropenia. I I think that's very clearly shown. It's actually one of the powers of showing uh, of doing multiple doses. It's clearly a dose-related effect. Now, in terms of infection, the numbers of infections were very low. There's no statistical differences for major infections, including pneumonia. But what Dr. Aaron summarizes is exactly correct, and I think that that's, it's also the correct approach for this drug or any other drug in this class going forward. is going to have to be very cautious. The criterion for stopping the drug was when people's neutrophil counts hit 1,500, which was thought to be a reasonably conservative approach. And the fact that you know more than 20% of people reached that threshold and didn't get infections is probably good. What would be unclear is if the neutrophil count had dropped lower than that, what would the risks be? Clearly, a neutrophil count of zero puts people at risk, and it would be substantial. And so I don't know where that threshold will be. It's generally regarded as being quantitatively related to the number of neutrophils. And so I think the risks will go up as the neutropenia gets worse. Now, how to deal with that going forward in development of drugs of this class, I think, is to a large extent sort of untrammeled snow, But I think this study was done within the reasonable uh, aspects of safety and that uh, similar approaches presumably uh, would be acceptable going forward.
0: Just to follow up, Dr. Renard, one thing I thought about reading this paper, and I don't know if there are studies or if it's feasible, but would a nebulized form of the drug be feasible to have effect on neutrophils in the airway but not have the side effect of neutropenia?
1: Yes, so I think that certainly for most drugs, delivering it directly to the lung improves its therapeutic index because you can avoid systemic effects. With this particular drug, you might be able to decrease neutrophil recruitment into the lung. Presumably, it can block CXCR2 where it needs to work, which may be in the vasculature or in the tissues, I don't know. And so it might not have as much effect on peripheral blood neutrophil levels as giving the drug systemically. You would certainly believe that to be the case. But that doesn't mean that it would mitigate the risk of infections, especially infections in the lung, since presumably neutrophils prevent infections like pneumonia. And I'll point out that there wasn't a statistically insignificant increase in pneumonias in these studies. There are very few, so it would have been difficult to have achieved that. It was the total infections that showed the 10% increase. But decreasing neutrophils in the lung could increase the risk for lung-specific infections. And so that while there may be advantages and very important advantages of giving the drug by inhalation, I don't think that that is likely to completely mitigate infection risk for drugs of this class.
0: Another follow-up, Dr. Nard, are there plans to build on these study findings and conduct a randomized clinical trial of the highest dose, the 50 milligram dose in current smokers?
1: Well, you're asking a question that I don't really know the answer to. That would have to be a question you'd have to put to the study sponsors in terms of what their plans are going forward. I do hope, though, that the the data from this study will be built upon by many investigators, not just for MK7123, but for other drugs that can target neutrophil recruitment into the lung. And I think that the the key findings here are that blocking, presumably, neutrophil recruitment into the lung is associated with clinically measurable benefits, uh, which, of course, helps prove that neutrophils have a pathogenic role, but also demonstrates that there's clinical outcomes that could be measured with drugs that would target this pathway, which is, of course, a way forward to get them approved and then a way to gauge their use clinically. So I hope that if either MK7123 or other drugs that target the same sort of biology will go forward because, as Dr. Aaron said at the beginning, we desperately need something different than the same old, same old that will approach COPD Closer to the pathogenic mechanisms, and rather than just dealing with the downstream physiologic effects.
0: Thank you, Dr. Nard. And actually, I'd like to close the podcast with quoting Dr. Aaron's
1: the last paragraph of his
0: editorial that accompanies your manuscript, and sort of get his comments on the road forward. So, quoting Dr. Aaron, the investigators and the company that developed MK7123 should be congratulated for having the guts to walk the neutrophil tightrope to develop new, innovative therapies that target the root cause of COPD. We don't need more bronchodilators or more bronchodilator trials for COPD. We need more trials of MK7123 and drugs like it. So, Dr. Aaron, I'd like to ask if you could expand on that and tell us how you think this study informs our future study of therapies for COPD that are not bronchodilator trials.
2: Well, thank you. The quote sort of says it all. I think, you know, Dr. Renard and the study sponsors and the other study investigators need to be congratulated because this was a gutsy study. There was potential for harm for the patients, but more importantly, there was potential for great benefit, benefit to the patients and also benefit to science for allowing us to better understand the role of the neutrophil and neutrophilic inflammation in triggering and in propagating uh, the disease we call COPD. I think that ultimately we need studies just like this one and studies with similar compounds that are targeting cytokines and inflammatory chemokines and other important molecules that may be triggering inflammation within the lung and the airways, triggering systemic inflammation, and hence worsening and perhaps triggering COPD. I think that the exciting thing about this trial is that it it informs us on pathogenesis. It shows us that, yes, there are potential risks in targeting these pathways, but the risks are manageable, and the uh, actual side effects that were observed in this trial were not serious, and therefore, companies need to go forward. I think drugs like this one and similar drugs that target these inflammatory pathways are going to lead us to a breakthrough where one day we can effectively treat COPD and prevent its progression. Well, we don't have anything like that now, but I think if we keep doing trials like these, we'll get there in the near future.
0: I want to thank you both for joining me today to discuss this interesting clinical trial. This phase two study of a drug that reduces neutrophil chemotaxis describes a statistically significant improvement in FEV1 with the highest dose of study drug, That is likely clinically significant in the subgroup of patients who are current smokers. However, this benefit is tempered by the fact that nearly one in five patients who received the highest dose had to be withdrawn due to neutropenia. Despite these issues, the author should be commended for trying a novel approach to COPD treatment. An innovative approach is needed to make a true breakthrough in COPD management. For further details, I'll refer you to the article from Dr. Renard and his colleagues as well as Dr. Aaron's editorial that are published in the May 1, 2015, issue of the Blue Journal. You can find this, as well as our other article discussion podcasts, at atsjournals.org, or you can subscribe to these podcasts in the iTunes store by typing American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in the search box. I'm Nitin Seam
1: for the Blue Journal.